We are live. We are on the air. Wrestling Podcast presents What's the Buzz? Hello, everybody. Hello. And the Pitbull. Absolutely. Good. How are you? I'm wonderful. Look at me. I look terrific, don't I? Yes, absolutely. Tell me I look marvelous. You look marvelous. Thank you, sweetie. Thank you, sweetie. <laughs> and speaking of marvelous, we have an incredibly marvelous guest tonight. He is not only marvelous, he's dashing, debonair, handsome beyond all recognition. Absolutely. I'm telling you what. His name is Jeffrey Mark, and he is a man affectionately referred to as the Encyclopedia Britannica of show business. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. How are you doing, my friend? It's Happy welcome. to be here with you. And I love the opening. I love seeing all those wonderful wrestlers. Uh, I used to, when I was a kid, I was a big fan of professional wrestling. Oh, wow. Really? We didn't know that. Oh, wow. <laughs> you didn't ask me. Yeah, well, no, actually, <laughs> I did kind of know, to be honest. <laughs> That's Just part like of why I used that intro and not my, my standard intro. In fact, um, I think I think I had a little uh, an intimate moment with one or two of those fellows. So, <clears throat> oh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever. Let me tell everybody a little bit about you. You were born Jeffrey Mark Fiddleman in a subdued suburb in a land far, far away called Brooklyn, New York, and that would be one of the last times you would be known by that name because the world at large would know you simply as Jeffrey Mark. You well, are there's a reason for that. Destined and born for the entertainment arts. Um, some people are gifted at birth. Some people have gifted uh, the greatness bestowed upon them. I think in your case, my friend, being gifted was just a matter of accepting who you are. Uh-huh. You are an entertainer, an actor, a writer, a producer, a performance artist, um, a spoken word artist. Um, and a hell of a nice guy. In fact, I know this because it says so on my Chiron right here. Actor, writer, producer, performance <laughs> artist, and a hell of a nice guy. And a jazz singer. Yeah. There you go. We're going to talk about that tonight, too. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me, because I grew up in this generation. You and I are of that same generation. Um, and we're... I think we're the same age. We're 63, 64. We are. And so I grew up in, and as with you, in what we call the golden age of television. Yes. And we also grew up in the golden age of live entertainment. We had people like Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis. um, Oh, my God. uh, Danny Lewis. We had people like... um, Norm Crosby, who could double talk his way out of everything. And a dear, dear friend of mine. What a wonderful, a sweet, sweet guy he was. Yes. Um, I, I, I never had the chance. And I, one thing that I, you know, my bucket list, I never had the chance to go to the Friars Club. Oh, I was a member. Yeah, I know you were. And that's why I'm telling you. <laughs> so <one thing laughs> that I never had a chance to do was become... You know, like to become close enough with somebody to get in, you know, on like a, a buddy pass or, a, you know, like I'm with him kind of thing. Um, but I know people that have been there. In fact, one we just recently lost um, one of the, uh, the the preeminent members of the Friars, Gilbert Gottfried. Mm-hmm. 
who just, in fact, he just performed here in New Jersey in Atlantic City not two months ago, two and a half months ago. And, he's such, uh, such and we, a nice man. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, sweet guy. Gilbert was, you know, he had that voice that everybody recognized. Well, well that's people, what made him so famous. He was one of a kind. Yeah. There, there isn't people, like there are, there aren't 17 Gilbert Gottfrieds out there. No. So, no, thank God there was only one. He was a, a, a national treasure for sure. Um, let's talk about this you know, greatness being bestowed upon you and uh, being in gifted, born with the ability to kind of like fit into this world. Um, I mentioned to you privately, and I'll, I'll share this publicly, um, at eight years old. Something remarkable happened in your life, and had it not gone another way, perhaps you and I may not be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. But at eight, you were your parents were visited by entertainment representatives. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, actually, I was. Oh, uh, you were. They uh-huh. came to my school. Uh, we lived for about a year and a half. Um, in Los Angeles, my father liked to run away from his troubles, and his way of running was to move different places. I got so you. Brooklyn. Brooklyn was home, but we lived in other places. And I was at a place called the Dixie Canyon Elementary School in Sherman Oaks, California, uh, which was the place where uh, Patty Peterson was going next door from a Donna Reed show to the Catholic school. And Lisa Loring from the Adams family was in my class. Oh, my God. So because of that, there were always people hovering around. And there were people hovering around me anyway. From the moment I entered that school, there were people hovering over me. Uh, I skipped two grades in that school because they were hovering over me. (laughs) And I sang, let there be peace on earth at an assembly. And in in the uh, playground, you know, the, the playground area of the school. Yeah. Uh, the principal allowed first a man from Desi Lu Studios offered me a contract to be a contract player, a contract kid for Desi Lu. Because right. of the red hair, I have to assume they were thinking about something with Lucille Ball. Parents wouldn't allow it. Yeah. Art Linkletter's people came. They wanted to have me on his show to be one of the kids he interviewed. Parents wouldn't have it. Then Danny Kay's people came to me. And they wanted me to solo. They wanted me to sing Let There Be Peace on Earth on their Christmas episode. Oh, and wow. my parents wouldn't. In fact, I have that show on videotape. Oh, and my they, God. They put in a children's chorus instead of me because the song is there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, just I'm not there. But wow. once I knew that level of interest was after me, mm-hmm. that was it. There, there was no longer any question in my mind. Somehow or other, and God took care of the other by uh, my parents divorcing me when I was 15. So I was on my own, not of my own choosing, but as long as I was, I was going into show business. And I did. That's an interesting. Can we talk about that? Are you comfortable talking about that? If I wasn't, I wouldn't have brought it up. Uh Uh, You mentioned your parents divorcing you. That's an interesting phenomenon that happens once in a while with there are a couple of famous examples of it Uh um there's a great deal of 
freedom in a situation like that if you know what you're doing. Um, Nobody knows what they're doing at 15. No. I stumbled around in the dark, but I guess I stumbled well. Well, um, you, you, you're, you're, I think your stumbling foot uh, was led by a divine presence that you could not see. I agree with you. My first day of high school, I met the love of my life. I was nine days away from being 14. I met Joel my first day, and that was that. Yeah. Two years later, I was emancipated, not of my own doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started doing dinner theater on summer stock. The next year, I made my first movie. The next year, I was in my first off-Broadway show. The right. next year, I was playing at the Playboy Club. So I got started very early. I had to earn a living. I had to do something. Yeah. I wasn't going to become a doctor like my grandmother wanted. I wasn't going to work for the post office like my mother wanted. Right. My parents, I think, got rid of me because my father, unfortunately for him, had a drug and alcohol problem. Yeah. My mother could only mother one. She decided to mother him. Yeah. And I think they thought uh, it would it would straighten me out and get rid of Joel, who they knew very well yeah uh, by by breaking us apart except that never happened they thought it, it happened, happened but it never mm-hmm. happened my, so my... how did um at, yes. at what point in earnest then did the bug bite to the point where you said okay it, now this is this is balls to the walls this is you know uh, countdown you know r- let rockets launch let's let's just do this my father, one afternoon, got very violent with mm-hmm. me, with my mother, with the household. Yeah. And I called my best buddy, Phyllis, who, I, who is still my best buddy, and I'm the godfather of her children. And I told her, I said, come and get me. Because I, I couldn't drive, but I had to get out mm-hmm. of the house. I was afraid yeah. I was going to get hurt. And she said, grab some sheet music. And I'd done amateur stuff all through you know, school and everything. Grab some sheet music. And she drove me. We were living outside of Baltimore at that time. She drove me all the way into Washington, D.C. to go to an uh, audition for Mm -hmm. Little Abner at the Colony 7 Dinner Theater. And I opened my mouth and sang with a voice I didn't know I had. I'd never heard that voice before. I was hired to play Mm -hmm. an adult. I was 15. The director and producer, nobody knew how young I was. We didn't tell anybody. And I worked until I was sent away. And then once I was sent away, uh, no one could control it anymore. And I did every possible thing I could do to perform and learn. And uh, good for you. Ended up back in New York City and just, just, you know, hit it, hit, hit the pavement quickly. I was back in New York. I was in an off-Broadway show in six weeks, which is... I have to tell you something, not to interrupt you. I have to tell you, we have a a pretty pretty important player in our chat room right now. Okay. His name is Stephen Plim. He has hired... um, He's hired. He was hired by the who's who of Hollywood to represent them. Mm-hmm. He's an entertainment manager and agent. His claim to fame, he was the personal manager of Tiny Tim. Wonderful. And Mr. Plim is here today. He says, love the show, baby. 
And that's mm-hmm. just the way he does it. Yeah. Stephen, <laughs> I love you too, brother. Um, an amazing guy, mm-hmm. Stephen Plim. Um, just as a side note, you, know, you want to talk about a guy who redefined the 1960s. Tiny Tim was the guy, um, for sure. So let's talk about your love of television. It's uh, particularly old television, certainly before your time. um, But you and I both are of the same age genre. And uh, we can appreciate that era of television. Well, those of us, and I, I make this very specific, baby boomers who grew up in the greater New York area had a buffet of goodies that I don't think anybody else got. You're absolutely right. New York had more television stations than any other place. Absolutely. And of course, until the late 1960s, most of television came Mm -hmm. from New York. If it was live, it was a game show, soap opera, news, variety shows, it came from New York. Mm-hmm. So we yeah. were inundated night and day mm-hmm. with what was currently popular. So Absolutely. the current Broadway shows, you know, Ed Sullivan gave us a window on the world, except Ed oh Sullivan God. was in our Ed was in our backyard. You yeah. know, we didn't we didn't have to only watch it, we were there for it. But mm-hmm. we also got to watch reruns of television shows from the late 40s and 50s. Absolutely. We also got to watch classic old films so baby boomers all of us that certain age we knew who fanny bryce was before funny girl sure. we knew who eddie Cantor was we knew who al jolson was we knew who george jessel was we knew who our grandparents loved then we knew who our parents loved and then we knew what was you know the beatles and all the stuff that was current sid bernstein who brought the beatles to this country was my cousin so it was in my house yes i was exposed to all of this yeah. And I, I knew, oh, from the time I was two and a half, mm-hmm. I, this was the path for me. It was, there was never in my mind any question about it. Remarkable. It's absolutely, absolutely. remarkable. The, the generation that, and everybody who watches this show knows, I'm 63. Mm-hmm. The generation that grew up watching Lucy. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, my God. Um, uh, Father Knows Best, the Danny Thomas Show, Dick the Van Dyke. Donna Reed Show. Donna Reed, absolutely. That, mm-hmm. that, was, that was like, you know, a, a, a master's course in television mm-hmm. and television all the, comedy. And all yes. the kid actors and all of those shows are my friends. Mm-hmm. And that's the remarkable part. You got to not only... Watch the shows, but live the dream of knowing who these people were. Yeah, yeah. I got to the residual of it. You know, I, I got the, um, you know, you remember you mentioned something critical that they were here in New York. But one once Hollywood called everybody from East went West. Yes. Everybody went to L.A. and then they very rarely ever came back home, so to speak. You're mentioning kid actors. Mm -hmm. This coming Sunday, I'm going to be with Paul Peterson from the Donna Reed Show, Happy Garber from Family Affair, um, other young people, well, they're not, I mean, 
mm-hmm. our age, but but others who who were kid actors were all going to be together Sunday afternoon at an event out here in Palm Springs, right. because we have the same we, we we know the same people. We've lived the same kind of lives. We've known each other for decades. Yeah, they've known each other for half a century. I've yeah. known them for decades. Mm-hmm. I, I call myself, and I mean this: I'm the luckiest son of a bitch on the planet. You I'm certainly you. You certainly are mm-hmm. lucky, I would but say you yes. are you're more blessed than lucky. I think mm-hmm. Amelia. Yes. Um, why don't you chime in on this? You've been sitting there looking, you know. I'm just in awe. I mean, of every because back when I was growing up, there was nothing like this, and I wish there was TV shows like this when I was growing up because you don't have the TV shows like this anymore, like the wholesome, uh, down to earth family shows. All the 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 type of shows there is now is just all reality shows and the stuff that they show nowadays. You couldn't it's get lazy, Amelia. Exactly, you couldn't no, get rid of. You it's financial. Yeah. Kids, it's financial. Uh-huh. Yeah. It is so much less expensive mm-hmm. to do a game show or to do a reality show. It's horrible. I, I do this. I don't like this. This kind of like I don't, I yeah. do that. I'm yeah. doing it because there are no, no. reality shows. No, they're none. all they're- written because I have written for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. all planned out. Nothing is real about everybody's it. gonna know what they nope. say. Everybody's planned it, on what they the say. Thing. You're, and you're absolutely mm-hmm. right, Jeffrey. And and mm-hmm. thank you for, and I hope to God that some people woke up when you said that. Mm-hmm. Th- there are no reality shows. Look, the there's Bachelor, nothing wrong with people. Fiance. All of these shows. It's all written. They all know what's going to happen. That you mm-hmm. that you think are reality mm-hmm. programs. They've got writers, directors, mm-hmm. producers. They're, they are finely tuned by and in a lot of cases by actors mm-hmm. i have i have written and produced these kinds of shows mm-hmm. so i can tell you firsthand there is no such thing as a citizen of the united states putting themselves in harm's way for money you can't sign your rights away that way Mm-hmm. No, no, nobody's on an island someplace getting snake bitten. It's all <laughs> or not eating for so many days. <laughs> off camera, there's a whole long table of food with craft services. <laughs> yes, exactly. There are doctors right there making yes. sure that everyone mm-hmm. is well. Because heaven forbid someone actually gets seriously ill or injured, right? Maybe filling the show work for millions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know. Catering mm-hmm. is just a phone call away, you know. Yeah, yeah none of it and is what it seems. Questions for Jeffrey Mark. Oh, we have uh, questions. Okay. <laughs> what yeah. inspired you for the sequence hat, which I love, and your vest? Uh, easy, easy. That's, that's an easy answer. I love it. I, I love was performing in Los Angeles a long time ago, mm-hmm. and Rip Taylor came to see me perform. Oh, I love Rip Taylor. He's and one Rip of my favorites. With Chuck McCann. Mm-hmm. He was a very famous uh, TV kid show host in New York mm-hmm. and a cartoon voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they took me out to dinner and Rib said to me, Jeffrey, you are magic on stage, mm-hmm. but you're dressed like a fucking accountant. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent me to a store where I got the first sparkly hat. Mm-hmm. It's a very long story. I'm, I'm condensing down for you. Okay. Sent me to That's a fine. store. I got a hat. I went on a cruise as an entertainer. Everybody on the cruise ship loved it. 
The next cruise, I brought three hats. The next cruise, I brought six hats. I have about 110 hats now in my dressing room. Mm -hmm. I've got a closet full of sparkly clothing and sparkly scarves and sparkly shoes and all kinds of jewelry because this has become my brand. And mm -hmm. thanks to good management and a wonderful publicist, Harlan Bowl, but Rip branded me and it's made me a star. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, I have a Rip Taylor story. It involves Rip Taylor, the late Johnny Ray, and myself. The two aforementioned celebrities and the, the schlump over here were having lunch together at Bally's Casino in Atlantic City. Well, you know, Rip was blind as a bat. He couldn't see shit, right? So I had to read the menu for him. Johnny Ray is sitting there. God bless him. He was just as patient as could be. And deaf. And deaf. And couldn't hear <laughs> shit. So I'm now imagine this, Amelia. I'm mm -hmm. reading the menu to a guy who can't see in front of a man who can't hear. All right? Mm -hmm. This was... You, you couldn't make this shit up, Okay. <laughs> So and I'm reading and I'm going on and, you know, and Rip was, he wanted to hear the whole fucking menu. So I'm reading the menu. <laughs> At one point, Johnny Ray slams down his hand. Everybody turns their head and look. He goes, can we fucking get to this already? I'm on. <laughs> I've got a show to do in an hour. Tell me something. Did they stick you with the check? Um, actually, <laughs> they were smart. I, no, no, no. When you went out, when you went out to eat with Rip Taylor, unless he took you to Cuckoo Roo, which was his favorite cheap fast food place. Yeah. You went out with Rip. You paid the privilege by paying the check. And yeah. you know what? Happily. So the man was wonderful to me. Yes. He, he was uh, an enormous uh, presence in my life. And, you know. Uh, I will tell is... you, it, it was an honor to pick up the check. Mm -hmm. I knew going in, I was going to pick up the check. It was, you know, because it was my, you know, I invited them. Um, in Atlantic City, I, I, I was blessed and very fortunate to meet a lot of the A-listers. Certainly uh, uh, people who may have been past their prime, but still held nostalgic value. Johnny Ray was one of them. Uh, Leslie Uggams was another uh, one of my favorite people. Um, um, oh, God. Um, oh, um, the, the woman that was married to Rod Stewart. Oh, um, Anita Ekberg. Anita mm -hmm. Ekberg. Um, a few people realize this, but she was actually a pretty damn good little singer. And uh, and she sang at, at our club there in, in Atlantic City. But I, I've had the chance to rub elbows with, with some of these people. Certainly not to the degree that the Jeff Mark has. So mm -hmm. I want to ask you, um, was there anyone among these people that you le legitimately felt starstruck by? Well, of course. How can you spend time with Milton Berle mm -hmm. or Ethel Merman or Mary Martin or Carol Channing or Kay Ballard and not feel a little starstruck. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, 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 the trick, of course, is to quickly and mm -hmm. be a person with these folks. Yeah. The, you know, fan fandom mm -hmm. is nice for a few minutes. It, it gets kind of cold and stale at dinner. 
Yeah. So you, you learn mm-hmm. to, to relate to them as persons. Sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of them became very close friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dawn Wells from Gilligan's Island, one of my best ah, friends. She yeah. was, I will tell you that Dawn was a wonderfully, incredibly bright woman. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Lady. Oh, I know. I knew her. We were close buddies for over 25 years. She Jack, was, Jack Riley from the Bob Newhart show and I were very close. Uh-huh. Jack I, Carter I was, and I were very close. And, and he's the guy I always liked, Jack Carter. Every impression sounded the same. But who cared? Because he was fucking hilarious. Louie and I and I were good buddies. Louie and uh, I. Howard Morris oh and I were close friends. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, Milton Burl and I were buddies, not as close, because getting close to Milton was not easy. I danced the end with of his Milton Burl. I'm sorry? I danced with Milton Burl. I went to the men's room with Milton Burl. Um, I'll tell you what happened. I was running a club. Anita knows this. I'm, I'm sorry. My wife Anita knows. But Amelia may know the story. Um, I did a show at the Valley Forge Hilton, uh-huh. just adjacent to the Valley Forge Music Fair. Milton Milton was performing at the Valley Forge Music Fair. A few nights before he had gotten in, came to the club at the uh, at the Valley Forge Hilton. I was performing there with my other partner. We had a DJ routine. We had dancers and music the whole bit. Milton Burl comes in and he's and Jeffrey, he is in full regalia, brother. He's in full regalia. Oh, yes, had, I remember. Remember the story? <laughs> yes. He had the pump. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was looking sharp. You know, mm-hmm. he was a beautiful woman that night. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he looks at me and he's got the cigar in his mouth and he puts it and he goes, Okay, let's dance. <laughs> <laughs> So I went, okay. So I had the lead. It was funny, though, because he wanted to lead. And now I'm the gentleman. I'll lead. So we danced a little. But it was fucking hilarious. Uh, it's a it's a, a war story that I have to tell because I lived it. Amelia knows the story from the show. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just a... a a character he was just like how do you define him he was a character mm-hmm. you know one of the probably the most influential singular performer in television i think that's not a, a, a stretch to say that certainly in the variety format he he invented it mm-hmm. and uh there really was nobody better at it milton privately was different milton yeah. Like many people I know in the business, didn't really like people who weren't in the business. He, 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 Rose Marie, another dear friend of mine, Rose Marie, called them civilians and mm-hmm. tolerated civilians. But if you knew your stuff, if you could talk to Milton about vaudeville and radio and mm-hmm. early television and you knew what you were talking about, Milton adored you. Mm-hmm. And we spent hours and hours yeah. doing that. And that that therein was the connection between Milton Berle and I. Uh-huh. Um, it's no secret that if you watch the show or you listen to our stream, um, I my my beginnings were television and radio, radio first and then television. Uh-huh. 
And my background is voiceovers, movie and television voiceovers. Um, in fact, my voice is still being heard. But Milton and I, uh, Milton, Mr. Burl and I uh, had a great deal to speak about. And we spoke about uh, guys from uh, one, one of his favorite shows. It, it was the, and a lot of people don't notice was the shadow back in the day. Um, and for those of you that are too young to remember, the shadow was a radio serial that was heard on the Westinghouse broadcast network all over the country. Um, and Milton Burrow loved those old serials, you know? So Jeffrey, um, you, you knew him until he passed or you knew him for a, a brief time or how long did you know Milton? I knew him over the last 10 years of his life. Okay. I was taken to the Friars Club by Jack Carter to meet him. And uh, Jack was a bombast, but he was a pussycat. As soon as Milton came into the room, Jack withdrew. Uh, he became a smaller person and was like this with Milton. Oh, God, sure. And what do you do? You know, you're meeting someone like Milton Berle. What do you say? How do you how do you not come across as just another Zlub who loves him? Yeah. So I said to him, Milton, on March 22nd, 1949, Ethel Merman had just finished doing Andy Got Your Gun on Broadway. And her very first TV appearance was with you on the Texaco Star Theater. And you and I put my fingers up like this and went like that. Mm -hmm. And he did the same thing at the same <laughs> moment. And I'll tell you what that means in a second. He said, how do you know about that? I said, I have a copy of the show. He said, I don't. I said, you do now. Mm -hmm. ah. Ethel, Ethel had heard that Milton upstaged people, that he'd grab them by the shoulders and push them so that the audience would look at him and not them. Yeah. They we're doing a sketch together leading into a song. And M M Ethel put little itty bitty stick pins in her costume along the shoulder. So if he grabbed her, it's like, ouch. Oh. And he did. This is on live television. Yeah. But uh -huh. he wasn't going to let her get away with it. And he began to screw around with her and turn her hat around and do this under her chin while she was trying to sing <laughs> and do everything he could to throw her off. And they, they sang the song Friendship. And at the end of it goes, a chuck, 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 a nong, 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 a woo, woo, woo. And he kept making all these noises going on and on and on. And finally, Merman shoves him and yells, it's over already. <laughs> and then she turns to the camera, good evening, friends. <laughs> See, once, I, once I proved to him that I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. And every time I was at the Friars Club and he was there, mm -hmm. we would do this. Milton loved top 10 lists long before David Letterman or anybody else. That's mm -hmm. Top 10 lists was Milton Berle's idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Top 10 opening acts in vaudeville. Mm -hmm. um, top 10 big band singers. Mm -hmm. Top 10 comedians who never should have had a career. Yeah. You had, yeah, exactly. you had, you had to back up everything you were saying. Yeah. Sure. You could get into these conversations. He was so thrilled. And if you couldn't, you drifted away. Mm -hmm. Happily, I could, and uh, that was what our friendship was based on. Yeah.
Jeffrey, define for me and for the audience. Uh-huh. Those are not my dogs. I am not I'm so sorry. Uh, they, um, they're wanting to play with each other. I apologize about that. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh-huh. Um, can you mute yourself for a little bit? Yeah, sorry okay. about There you go. So uh, here's my question. Uh, define the, the, the magic of what we know, you and I know as the Friars Club. Uh, besides being a fraternity of comedians, what is it about that place, that building, and that organization that is so, and I'll use this word, sacred? Well, it's not just comedians. The Friars Club in New York, which is different, associated with the Friars Club in Beverly Hills. That's the one I belonged to, the one in Beverly Hills. The Friars Club was a place for press agents, that's what they used to call them back then, press agents, reporters, actors in legitimate Broadway shows, actors in vaudeville, uh, eventually actors in radio, that was open during the day. So if you were out of work, you could go there, you could hang out, you could have a meal, you could network. Or it was open at night, before a show, after a show. Hey, I just did this Broadway show. I'm hungry. I'd love to talk with some friends, but I don't want to go to a restaurant and, and deal with fans. And I can go to the Friars Club and hang out with my peers and have good, really good food and good conversation or play cards or smoke a cigar or get drunk or get laid, whatever you were looking for that evening. It was just a great place to go. You couldn't be a friar unless you actually had a career that yeah. was recognizable you had to be sponsored by someone to be a friar. Jack Riley sponsored me. Milton was the abbot on the West Coast. Right. So that was easy for me. It was a great place to go. The food was sensational. I heard the bar that. was sensational. I mean, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been clean and sober 33 years. God bless people, you. But people who drank loved the bar at the Friars Club. Sure, <laughs> they did. The Friars Club West Coast was, I mean, I could go there and sit with, with movie stars, sit with big-time screenwriters, sit with directors. Uh, where the, the Friars Club in New York really is more about comedians, stand-up people. Yeah. So, you know, I, I could go to the Friars Club and, oh, there's Sid Charisse. I think I'll join her for dinner. Yeah. And, uh, oh, Julie Andrews is here with, with Blake Edwards. I'll, I'll go sit with them for a little while and see what they're up to. Uh, it's phantasmagoria, a smorgasbord of goodies, especially for people like us who grew up admiring these people. And then you realize, oh, good heavens, I'm among them. And oh, good heavens, I may not be as big a star as they are, but I'm, I'm considered a peer or I wouldn't be here. And uh, I was at the Friars Club five or six days a week because wow. how much more fun could you have than that? Sounds like a bowl to me. <laughs> we have something here, Jeffrey, we call show and tell. This is your opportunity for me to shut up and for you to tell <laughs> your stories. Uh, pick right. a topic, young man. Hey, oh, good heavens. There he is. Indeed. Indeed. 
Talk that was my that was my lady. that was my first book on Ella Fitzgerald. I've written two of them. That's the book that kind of reignited my career. I had my own battle with drugs and alcohol in my 20s, and I kind of had to walk away from show business. I was unreliable. I, I, I would not show up for gigs. That is the audio version of me talking the book. Um, and it exploded. It became a bestseller. Uh, it got me other work, which got me a Grammy nomination. And then I was back in business again. And I have been ever since. There's these last 30 years had just been one wonderful job after another. Uh, that is me a little more recently, the one with Ella in the background uh, for the second book on Ella I wrote. I wrote the first book while she was alive with the idea. Stop. <laughs> I can't talk that fast. With the oh, idea that <laughs> with the idea that I wasn't going to tell the whole truth. She was still alive. I didn't want to hurt her. The second book really told the truth. It was a lot more in depth. That is not the cover that is going to be. That is someone put that together. Uh, the new Lucy book is coming out next year. The original The Lucy book covered Miss Ball's television career from live TV till she died every single time she appeared. Game shows, talk shows, variety shows, guest appearances, her own shows, commercials. The new one has all of that with new interviews, plus all the films, all the radio shows. Yeah. I loved uh -huh. being uh -huh. the Ricardos. Um, it was factually very incorrect. It is not a documentary. If you're looking for facts, read my book. Yeah. But the relationships, the problems, uh, I, I think Aaron Sorkin was brilliant. He took three different things that happened. One in 1952, one in 1953, one in 1959, mm -hmm. and fictionally made it all happen the same week. So you got a really good capsulized version of their relationship, the trials and tribulations they went through. That's the first Lucy book authorized right. by the family, forward by Steve Allen. The new one has another forward also by Fran Drescher. So it's, uh -huh. I'm really looking forward to that coming out. That's an interesting choice for a forward. Why Fran Drescher? Because to me, she's like the new Lucy. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the nanny is Fran Drescher doing her version of Lucy. Yeah. Not Lucy Ricardo, but Lucy Carmichael. Yeah. Lucy show. Yeah. So Fran, mm -hmm. Fran uh, really, really admired Miss Ball. And I really, really admire Fran as an actor. And mm -hmm. as the head of the union. So uh, I was thrilled that she would do that for me. She that reminds me a lot of Lucy. That's me with my friend, Tippy Hadron, mm -hmm. right? Holding up uh, our books together. Let's talk about Tippy Hadron a little bit. How did you meet her? And uh, uh, where, did, where did that uh, friendship develop from? We met that day. That photo is of us meeting. Oh, uh, we, gotcha. we, have, mm -hmm. we have the same publicist, again, Harlan Bowl, okay. who is the publicist of the stars, especially of our generation. Yeah. Uh, both of us had new books. There was um, an event in Palm Springs saluting Tippy that I will say did not go very well. Mm. So after she did whatever she had to do on stage, Harlan and Tippy and I left and went out to dinner together and uh, they had a few drinks and I had some coffee 
and we spent half the evening making fun of the people who had done the event and uh, bonded. Ah, <laughs> uh, there's Milton. There I adored. Is. I adored Milton Burrow. Milton. Here's a Milton story you, you don't hear too often. I don't think you know, all those stories about Milton privately. Yes, uh, that he was uh, blessed between my legs are true. And he 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 took me to the men's room of the Friars Club. If he liked you, he would take you to the John and pull it out and go, all right, you're, you're like, you're one of us now. This is your yeah. rite of passage. But if he didn't know you, he didn't even want to discuss it. Yeah. And there was a guy who came to the Friars Club and Milton told me this story himself. And he and Buddy Arnold, who was his best buddy always, were coming out of the steam room at the Friars Club, wrapped in a towel. And there was a guy who came over to him and said, Milton, hey, Burl, I hear you got a big one. Bet your mine's bigger than yours. hundred bucks. And Milton said, sir, and this was true. I know every single person at this club, what they're doing, what they're filming, who their agent is. I don't know you. That means you're a guest here. Would you please act like a guest? This is inappropriate. Go find the person who brought you and please enjoy what our club has to offer. But this part, let's skip this. The man was insistent. Come on, girl, put up or shut up, put up or shut up. hundred bucks. And finally, Buddy Arnold said, oh, Milton, just pull out enough to win. <laughs> pull out enough to win. I love it. Oh. My this Judy. I, I will tell you about Judy Tenuta. I had the biggest crush on her for the longest mm -hmm. time. You have excellent taste, my friend. Thank you. She is a lady. She is hysterically funny on stage and off. She is sweet as sugar. I adore her. Uh, it, it breaks my heart that she's had to battle cancer. But mm -hmm. she is kicking cancer's ass. And yeah. those of us who love her are right behind her holding her up. I have a question for you, Jeffrey. Why sure. is it that uh, she was flavor of the month for a long time on television shows? And then all of a sudden you, she couldn't get booked for, you know, for a lack of trying. Mm -hmm. It is one of those very sad parts of show business. Everybody's mm -hmm. career is a roller coaster. Yeah. Like right now, I'm very hot. That's why you're having me on your show. Sure. Other years, not so hot. Um, it can be a change of venue. It could be changing, changing, mm -hmm. um, yeah, changing your uh, agent or changing your management. We, we never know why these things happen, or just another comedian comes along uh, who's enough like you. But they're new and they're different and they're younger. Yeah. But uh, Judy has lost nothing. We'll talk about Miss Merman in a moment. Judy yeah. has lost nothing. She has still got, she's burning on, on every burner with her humor. And I'm so thrilled that we are dear friends and I get to see her very often. So uh, that's Judy. So I wrote oh, this God. book because there had not been a really good book written about Ethel Merman. I'd known Ethel. We were not close friends, right. but I, I knew her enough to write about her. Uh, the book, the book did not do as well as I would have hoped for. Uh, 
to, to my great surprise, the gay community did not take this book to its bosom. They didn't like what I wrote about her. They didn't like, A, that I didn't roast her for being this raving bitch everybody hoped she was. Like, that's a cool thing to be. Yeah. And I am the only person who's ever told the truth about her marriage to Ernest Borgnine. And for whatever reason, the gay folks just didn't want to hear about it. So I love the book. I stand behind it. Rose Marie wrote the forward for it. And right. Rosie and Ethel were very, very close friends. Jeffrey, how much influence does the gay community have in Hollywood? When I got clean and sober, I had lunch with Paul Peterson, who has mentored me. I've known Paul since I'm eight years old because his sister was in school next door to me. And I used to talk with him after school when he picked her up. So I've known Paul a very long time. Right. And Paul said, Jeffrey, it is as true today. Oh, I was so fat then. True today as it, as it ever, ever has been Hollywood. Not that's my mother and Carol Channing and me Hollywood, not all of show business, but Hollywood is run by people who are gay and Jewish who spend half their day denying that they're gay and the other half denying that they're Jewish. <laughs> so I think in the years since then, you know, this is 33 years ago. I, I, I don't know that either of those ethnicities has as much control as they used to, but there are a lot of gay people in show business and mm -hmm. the Hollywood part of show business, the great movie studios were run by Jewish men. Yeah, And mm -hmm. Vaudeville was run by Jewish men. And the great composers, minus Cole Porter, were Jewish men. So there is a Jewish flavor to show business, of which I am very proud. And there is a gay flavor to show business because we've been there since the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Maybe because the business was a little more accommodating and accepting than other businesses were. So we could be ourselves. I have only once in my years doing live theater ever heard any kind of racism or sexism or, uh, and that was in summer stock where I had a director who was a born again Christian and hated Jews and gave me a very hard time wow. during the entire run of the show. Uh, so much so that he wouldn't invite me to the cast party when we were done and the cast refused to go unless I went. He had me come to his house. He put down a plastic runner that went this way and then to the right, like a right angle. Walked me over to a chair that had plastic over it. I couldn't mingle. I couldn't get my own food. He put a plate of food in front of me. I ate it as soon as the last bite. By two elbows, I was lifted up and taken to the door because he didn't want this dirty Jew dirtying mm -hmm. up his clean Christian home. Oh my gosh! Are you Other than, me? Oh, oh no. my god, that's horrible. That was that was summer stock in Arkansas. Oh, other, you said, you, well, you Arkansas. said the magic word Arkansas. Arkansas, there you go. Other than, mm -hmm. other than that, I have never heard of any kind mm. of that awful, awful stuff happening in the Broadway world. In Hollywood, it's still difficult to be gay. You still have to yeah. hide stuff. The picture we're looking at here is my dear Judy. And Jerry Jewell, who is mm -hmm. a gift of a human being and very funny, that is. Um, I, know, I know, I know, Jerry. 
Yes. She is absolutely wonderful. We are at mm -hmm. there at the Hollywood Museum, and that's a, a salute to uh, Carol Burnett and funny ladies behind us. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, <laughs> what a just, just uh, I'm very happy and proud to be part of the Hollywood Museum family. I'm there often for events. Mm -hmm. There are belongings of mine that are in exhibits. And, uh, incredible i'll tell you absolutely what, it's remarkable you've got mm -hmm. um a plethora of stories that you've barely scratched the surface of mm -hmm. i want to start scratching the surface here i want to ask you a question i wouldn't i would be remiss in my job if i didn't ask a few questions all right um the uh the spirit of the king you directed the show about Elvis. How did mm -hmm. Elvis come into your life? Mm -hmm. Well, Elvis came in the front door and the back door. Um, I was mm -hmm. approached by a producer who was bringing in, and he was marvelous, this man, uh, an Elvis impersonator from Las Vegas. He was bringing him to Palm Springs to do a show at a casino in Palm Springs. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Palm Springs and the general Coachella Valley, for which the Coachella Music Festival is named, yeah. have many Native American casinos. They all have shows. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of entertainment going on here in the Valley. And he wanted me to take this guy's very good, very good nightclub act and make a show out of it. And I did. I wrote it. I directed it. I worked with him. The problem was they told me one thing and told this guy something else he was expecting to come to town and just do his nightclub act and i'm looking up his name because i, I want to say it because he really is a brilliant brilliant elvis impersonator and an artist he's an incredible artist he he did a medley of elvis songs while he painted elvis's portrait on stage that was steve Connolly. steve Connolly was spirit of the king that was the show so the idea was that, that it was a show about Elvis and Marilyn in Palm Springs. And then we would take Marilyn out and put in Elvis and Lucy in Palm Springs and take oh. Lucy out. We would do Elvis and Liberace. That could have run for decades that way. Oh, my God. Did, yeah. Steve please. didn't want to do it. Steve thought he was being brought here to do his act. And when he got here, he didn't want to do the script. He didn't want to do the act. The Marilyns were hot, fired. And the show ran respectable, respectable length of time, mm -hmm. but it could have been so much better. This is what happens when producers lie to their talent and pit talent against each other instead yeah. of there being har harmony and we're working as a team together. Steve and I are still in touch. I don't speak to the producer. So yeah. that's the front door. The back door is, and we talked about this uh, off camera, is I'm among the many projects I'm working on right now, I'm working on a book with Sandy Martindale, who's Wink Martindale's wife. And Sandy and Elvis dated, I mean, very seriously before Priscilla. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm learning firsthand so much about Elvis from her and from Priscilla. And uh, also Jack Carter, I mentioned, and I were very dear friends. And Jack was in Viva Las Vegas. So mm -hmm. Jack told me wonderful insider stories about making the film and being Elvis's friend. So although I never got to meet the man, I, I feel like he's a part of my life. Incredible. incredible. I, I actually did get to meet him. And uh, it was at 
in fact, about eight weeks before he passed in right here in Philadelphia at the uh, at the time called the Spectrum, the Philadelphia Spectrum. And um, it was a sad occasion. It was bittersweet. He was way out of shape, very big, um, not terribly coherent. Um, certainly a shell of the the king of rock and roll that he was. Uh, talk to me about uh, uh, other perhaps disappointing individuals, maybe somebody oh, that happy you to. Uh, happy oh, go to. for it. Happy to absolutely go for it, my friend. I'm talking from my heart. I would say 90% of the big stars that I have met and worked with, major people, have been a joy. They're secure in their talent. They're secure in their careers. They've been helped by other people. They were like, how can we help you? How wonderful. And then there's a 10%. Uh, I think the first big disappointment, and oh my gosh, I just misplaced a name. The man who was the star of the untouchables on television. Robert Stack. Mm -hmm. Robert Stack and I were in an airport in Los Angeles. <laughs> he was flying first class. I was flying business class to New York. I approached him in the lounge. Hey, while you're in New York, would you please let me interview you for the Lucy book? Because he, he did an episode of the Lucy show. He said, well, we've got five and a half hours to kill. Why don't you interview me on the plane? I said, well, thank you. And he well, arranged. There was, this was back in the days of the wide body jets huge jets yeah and there was like a little sitting area for the uh, flight attendants with a curtain like two couches facing each other mm -hmm. and he arranged for coffee and cookies to be served and for me to interview him and i'm interviewing him and all of a sudden he's like what is it with you homosexuals why can't you leave these women who are dead alone why are you picking their bones for your money and i said to him mr stack I agreed to this interview. Mr. Stack, uh -huh. I arranged for us to sit here and have cookies and cake. You, no, you did that. If you feel that way, please let me apologize and I'll leave. And uh, he said, no, 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 no. You've already started. Let me finish. And I finished as quickly as I could. Yeah. Go back to my seat in business class. Now, maybe it was because he was traveling with someone in first class who didn't happen to be his wife. So perhaps he was a little nervous or unnerved. Gotcha. About 20 minutes later, and I'm sitting on the aisle, I see coming back from the, where the, where the pilots sit from the, from the cockpit. They're coming back towards me, every single flight attendant on the flight. I thought, Holy Hannah, he's he's arranged for them to give me a parachute and get me off the airplane off the guy. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to end up somewhere over Detroit you know, parachuting down. Incredible. The the head flight attendant came. And now, of course, everybody's looking at me. And from behind her back, she produced a magnum of champagne. I don't know if you know what a magnum is. For those of you who oh, don't yeah, know, absolutely. it's a sure. large bottle of champagne on steroids. Yes. It's like it's like <laughs> two feet long. It's huge yeah. and very, very expensive. Absolutely. And uh, on behalf of American Airlines and Mr. Stack, we apologize for the way you were treated. Please forgive us. 
Wow. Who's the biggest piece of shit you ever met in show business? Tom Jones. Tom Jones, really? Interesting that you should say that. A dear oh, friend no. of mine. Now, let me tell you, on stage, <laughs> on stage, he is brilliant. I'd walk a mile to see the man perform. He's a genius on stage. The man in his prime had a magnificent voice. He was ridiculously handsome. He knew how to use the stage. He put on maybe the best nightclub show I have ever seen. And growing up, I was a big fan of his voice and his masculinity and his style and his persona. Yeah. So many years go by and I happened to be in Las Vegas with Frida Payne, who's a friend of mine. Frida was opening up at the MGM Grand. She was the opening act for the Four Tops the next day. And as is custom, sometimes the last night of a performance, the star on stage will introduce the person who's coming in next. And he introduced Frida from the audience and invited us backstage. Right. And Frida whispered in my ear, no matter what he does or says, you are not to leave me alone in that dressing room with him because he will say things to get rid of you. I don't care what he says to you. You are not to leave me alone. I said, great. What do I do? We go back and I, now he's a friend of yours. I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, sir. No, what I was going to say is um, a friend of mine, Steve McCoy, is the world's number one Tom Jones impersonator. He knows Tom very well. So well, I, this is what happened backstage. Yeah. Um, Tom was I, there with his dresser and his people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, there's the legend and there's the person. Oh, you know, there was a girdle. There was something stuffed down his pants. There were lifts in the shoes. The hair was mostly black spray. All right. You know, we all have a persona we present ourselves on stage with. I have no problem with any of that. The problem I had was his almost immediately, hey, love, get rid of the poofta, and why don't you and I have a shag? He called me every name for gay that's not nice you could think of. I kept trying to tell him who I was. And, you know, oh, Ella was on your show. Talk about Ella on your show. No, 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 no. You go suck a cock someplace, and I... And Frida had her hand in my arm with nails digging. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was going to bleed that I shouldn't oh, walk out on her. Oh, well, shit. then I, I, I had enough. I, I, I you know, I, 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 I have great respect for talent and Tom's talent. I sincerely think he's brilliant. And I said, Tom, you know, somebody in my family. He was like, I know somebody in your family. I said, yes. Beverly Harrell. And I, I saw the blood start to drain out of his face. <laughs> my cousin, or my mother's first cousin, Beverly Harrell, owned the first legal brothel in Nevada, the Cottontail Ranch. Ah. And I said to Tom, and Tom, Bev had photos of you at the ranch, like all dozens and dozens of photos of you there that I've seen. And she's told me all the stories. And I said, and I have the photos now because Bev, Bev had passed away. We were out of that dressing room in 30 seconds. <laughs> 
And I am Frida, and Frida totally. grabbed me and said, how did you come up with that? I said, it's the truth. Mm-hmm. I just was, I would never be rude to him, but he was being rude to me. And you know what? Mm-hmm. I don't let people bully me anymore. No, you know, no. anyway. So, I am utterly astounded that he would behave that way in someone mm-hmm. who clearly he doesn't know. And not knowing someone is a bad thing in that position because he doesn't know if you're going to write something about him, broadcast something about him. That's a bad position to be in. Absolutely. I'm shocked. Well, this is, and- this is like 30 years ago. So I'm telling the story now. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you mm-hmm. what, it wouldn't have yeah. mattered if it was 30 years or, or 30 days. Right. You have no right to talk about, you know, an individual's sexuality like that. Mm-hmm. I don't care who, I don't give a mm-hmm. flying fuck who you are. Look, yeah. I, I've, been at, I've been at this since I'm 15. Having people comment on my sexuality is nothing new. Uh, Buddy Hacker did it all the time. Buddy and I were frenemies. We had 50 of the same friends. We were at dinner together constantly. But I was the faggot. I was the fruit. I was the cocksucker. And, you know, like, why? And why, why, if you feel that way about me, are you having dinner with me? And why, for heaven's sakes, no matter where we ate or who we were with, did you have to sit next to me? So it's almost like he had like a moth to a flame. He didn't like the gay stuff, but he could not sit next to me. So that, 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 and again, buddy was hysterically funny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brilliant. There are brilliant comedy minds. I want to ask you, I want to, I want to actually follow up on that. I want to ask you about buddy that I've heard. um, uh, Because I, in preparation for this interview, I spoke Mm -hmm. to some other people. There are a couple of names that came up that I was told to ask you about. Okay. Buddy Hackett was one. I'm glad you mentioned him mm-hmm. without being prompted. The other one mm-hmm. was Johnny Carson. Yes. The, the mean-spirited nature of Buddy Hackett mm-hmm. and Johnny Carson. I can speak to Buddy's. I can't speak to Johnny's. When I was working on the Ethel Merman book, uh, Johnny's entire treasure trove of videos mm-hmm. are, are, are controlled by, and I guess owned by his nephew, Jeff Satsing. So I called Jeff. I said, look, I'm working on this book. I have a list of all the times she was on with Johnny. I know the stuff from the sixties doesn't exist anymore, but here's stuff from the seventies. I have these. I don't have these. And he said, Jeff, it's $500 an hour for us to copy these from the original master tapes onto in those days VHS for you. Yeah. I said, Jeff, I don't have that kind of money. I didn't get that kind of an advance to pay for it. He said, you didn't, you didn't get a couple hundred thousand dollars. I said, no, I didn't. He said, be by your phone in 30 minutes and 29 minutes and 59 seconds later, ring, ring, ring. Hey, Jeff, it's Jeff. I just talked to Johnny. Johnny is paying for everything you'll get them messaged over to you in a couple of days. So as far as I'm concerned, Johnny Carson was wonderful. Wow. Incredible. We've heard horror stories on this show about Johnny Carson. 
uh, particularly his mean-spirited nature, his duplicitous personality. Are there any people that struck you as being overtly duplicitous? One person on stage, another well behind the behind the first, curtain. First of all, that's everybody in show business. <laughs> all of us are one person, either in front of the camera, on stage, yeah. on mic, or and another another person. You know, this may come as a surprise to you. But if I'm not visiting with you on video, I don't sit here in sequence. Um, this is my home. This is my office. That is my Emmy over there. But mm -hmm. uh, I don't do this just to sit around the house and, 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 you know, watch I Love Lucy reruns. Everybody's got a public persona. That's just sure. part of the being in the business. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, especially people we've heard these stories about, I'll, I'll use Ethel Merman and Lucille Ball. Mm -hmm. What bitches, how hard they were to work with. How awful, how awful. Well, then my question is, those of you who feel she was awful, who were you to her? Did she start your career for you? Did she turn you from a clerk into a highly paid professional and mm -hmm. then expected you to be loyal and mm -hmm. you weren't? So she got angry with you? Oh, did you work on her show? And not want to rehearse. And that's why she got angry with you. Um, were you just her friend? Her friends have no bitchy stories to tell. She was a wonderful friend to people. Mm -hmm. Merman, if you had talent, Ethel Merman lifted you up. Ethel Merman practically discovered exactly. Vivian Vance. Mm -hmm. You know, you yeah. think Vivian, Vivian Vance was Ethel Merman's understudy in mm -hmm. two Coporter musicals. You'd think Vivian would hate her guts if she was so awful. No. She loved Ethel Merman and loved right. what Ethel did for her. But if you were in an Ethel Merman musical and you missed a cue or came in a little drunk or it wasn't, you, you were saving your strength for the evening performance. Yeah. And she's like, if I can be here two shows giving out full, so can you. So it depends on who you are. I have, I never worked with Tom Jones. Perhaps if I'd met Tom in a different situation, right? Who I yeah. was to him. That mm -hmm. evening, I was cock blocking him. Yeah. I was interfering. He couldn't get into Frida's pants. That's who right. I was to him that night. <laughs> you were the best friend. <laughs> exactly. So, uh -huh. But so it depends on mm -hmm. who you are to people and also yeah. how you behave. If you act like a jerk, don't be surprised that somebody else acts like a jerk. True uh -huh. enough. Andy Williams was very cold to me. Uh -huh. uh, I interviewed him for the Ella book. He was on the phone. We did it by phone. Very, very difficult, right? Uh -huh. And yet, four or five days later, I get in the mail. VHS tapes from Andy's private library of every time he worked together with Ella. As oh. a gift. Isn't that incredible? So, oh. you know, a lot of these times when there have been books written about Lucille Ball, about what a bitch she was yeah. and how she was terrible to Jack Benny. All mm -hmm. right. So I went to Jack Benny's manager, Irving Fine. I said, Irving, are these stories true? And he said, Jeff, I was there. I was his manager. Jack Benny didn't need Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball needed Jack Benny. If mm -hmm. I would have seen her kicking him, <laughs> or putting him on the floor or yelling right. at him, I would have removed him from the set and told him to go <laughs> herself. He said right. it never happened. Yes. Incredible. 
So ego, yeah. egos yeah. Are, exactly. are nothing new in, in the entertainment business. Uh-uh. Certainly, people, uh, you know, an ego. And people, people want to sell books. Yeah. They're very yeah. happy to say things in books that aren't true because they think, oh, I'll sell more copies if I say this. Right. So See, here's, I stand here's behind. I stand behind everything I've ever written. Good. And my memoirs are coming out next year, and I stand behind everything I've written in that too. Good for you. Good. What's for your you. question, sir? I'm, I cut you off. I'm sorry. That no, that's all. It's all good. Um, egos are nothing new in the entertainment business. In fact, it's required for some people, you know, to have a bit of an ego. Uh, who is bar none? The singular ego, the supreme egotist you've ever met. Somebody whose ego walked into the room 20 minutes before they did. Mm. Well, I'd have to give you several kinds of examples. I can't give you one. Merman was so confident in how she presented Ethel Merman to the audience. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to her that she might be bad. That that kind of ego, it doesn't even occur to her to be nervous. Wow. She just knows when the music starts, it's going to be there and the audience is going to give her a standing ovation. And even when she wasn't very good, and sometimes it happens, you have a bad throat, you're having a bad day, you didn't sleep well, the audience has adored her. Uh, then there's someone like Jack Carter. I adored Jack. I just, we were very, very close friends. But Jack's anger because of his ego why can't he be as big as bob hope and uh jack benny and george burns and lucille ball Uh he felt he belonged at that absolute at the top level uh Uh no no but he's in the level right underneath them Uh but it drove him wild Okay. I always thought that, that Jack Carter was an incredibly gifted actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a funny guy, you know, given the circumstances that whatever mm-hmm. he had to do. But I did not consider him, nor did I appreciate his talent and still don't as an impressionist. But yet most people regard him as an impressionist. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. He was really? he was a stand-up comedian who did a few impressions. A few. Yeah. Okay. Ed I'll, I'll accept that. That sounds he did, yeah. he, he did Ed Sullivan. He he did a very few impressions. Jack, uh-huh. that wasn't Jack. Jack was not um like Rich Little. That wasn't his main yeah. this is these are this is stuff he threw into his act from time to time. Uh-huh. Um yeah. And Bob Hope was really, really a nice person. My uncle ended up working as a janitor at one of his uh, uh, golf courses back in California. Bob Hope was a dick. Okay. Really? He wasn't that way too much. He was really nice to us. I rest my case. Bob depends on who you were to. Mm -hmm. Valley Forge Music Fair, Mm -hmm. 1979. Bob Hope was a prick. Really? Okay. It wasn't that way to my uncle. He, he didn't come across that way to us when we met uh, him. An egotistical, no, pardon the pun, nose mm-hmm. in the air, you know, better mm-hmm. than everybody else. Fuck him. Okay. Mm-hmm. See, now my Bob publicist, Harlan He must have had a good day whenever I met him, I guess. <laughs> my publicist, Harlan Bowl, worked for the Hopes. 
He mm-hmm. worked for Bob till Bob died. He worked for Dolores mm-hmm. till Dolores died. He's still mm-hmm. a publicist for the Hope family. Mm. He's got nothing but wonderful stories to tell. Yeah, he I, he was wonderful to us when we met him. And my, I, my I, uncle was just a custodian at his golf course. He I was think, like the lowest of the lowest jobs. I think mm-hmm. especially comedians. Get them on an insecure day. Because, you know, comedians, and I'll include myself, we're crazy. We're mashug in the head. Uh, you know, the idea that you're going to go out in front of a bunch of strangers and make them laugh for 20 minutes and half an hour, two hours. Yeah. It's crazy. And you have to think crooked to come up with all the humor. Um, so so I can't really point to a stand-up comedian Mm-hmm. whose main job was being a stand-up comedian, mm-hmm. who's, who's secure and right. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a Jack Carter story, and I'll, I'll give you a Shelly Berman story, because mm-hmm. Shelly and I were very good friends. Oh, Shelly. Oh, my God. Here's the name I haven't heard. <laughs> I, I was, I'm in Jack Carter's mansion in Beverly Hills. And the phone rings, and it's the Friars Club. Mm. And I'm sitting there in his office on his sofa, Jack's on an old-fashioned landline phone, you know, with the, the receiver's up here, and then the, the phone is here with push buttons. Yeah. And they're asking him, they're saying, we're doing a surprise roast for Norm Crosby for his 70th birthday party. We'd like you to MC it. Could you put April mm-hmm. 17th away? Don't, don't book it. And all of a sudden, Jack was, I turned 70. You didn't throw a surprise party for me. I'm I'm a bigger star than Norm Crosby. I'm funnier than Norm Crosby. I'm more talented than Norm Crosby. And he takes the phone and starts banging it on the desk like Khrushchev, screaming at these people obscenities. (laughs) There was no roast for Norm Crosby. They were honoring Jack. And they wanted him to put the date aside and be surprised. The entire event was canceled. Oh, and Jack was (laughs) for his behavior. Oh, my God. Security shot himself in the foot. We're doing. Oh, man. Different story. We're doing a benefit. Shelly Berman is the headliner. And we're at the Beverly Garland Theater in Los Angeles, which is. So she had ballrooms. She turned into theaters for for benefits. And Shelly was the headliner. You have a large stage and you have wide rows of people Mm -hmm. sitting there. And at the end were aisles to go to the John. There was no middle aisle. Right. And this little old man is sitting in the front row in the middle of Shelly's part of the show decides he has to go to the camp. Now, if he had turned left, it would have been like three people and then down an aisle and off to the John. No, no, no. He turned right and had to walk all the way across the stage in front of everybody and all the way up the other side Mm -hmm. and Shelly lost the people. He he, he just had to let the guy go (laughs) and then pick up his act and make fun of Mm it. And uh, then the guy comes back. Well, you figure he learned from the first time. No, 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 no. (laughs) He comes around the long way and in front of everybody and one at a time people are getting up to let him in. And Shelley begins to kibitz this guy. And this is a this was a man in his 80s who who looks up at Shelley and goes, Fuck you, Shelley Berman. 
how does any comedian recover from that? Because no. you can't berate this little old man mm -hmm. but who just had a fuck you at you. Mm -hmm. And I knew, I knew I had to go backstage. I ran because Shelly mm -hmm. ended the show and went backstage and started throwing furniture. He was so angry and hurt. Oh my goodness. Oh, man. And Shelly was no kid. Shelly was in his 80s <laughs> himself or 70s. Yeah. So we, we, we are uptight. Uh -huh. We're insecure. I think there's a price to pay for having talent. And part of that price is emotional. And yeah. uh -huh. all the people you hear all these awful things about, if you follow the story back to its origin yeah. and what the circumstances were. Now, right. younger. Now, this uh -huh. is baby boomer people, my peers and older. Now, young kids today. Yeah, they don't give a shit. Right. They want what they want, and they want when they want it. And being nice and being respectful and being a mensch, being a, yeah. a person of good character, doesn't even come into their equation. That's a difference. But I don't deal with those folks. I don't deal with 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 the, the crazy young folks. I don't have to. Yeah, if well, they, thankfully, thankfully. They come so. to me, they come to me when they decide to get clean and sober, and I help them. And I help them privately, and I'm not going to give you names. No, um, no, you don't need to. And, and I, uh, uh, I had a, I had one that broke my heart, Corey Haim, who who just couldn't get it. Yeah, but yeah, uh, uh, a troubled tr troubled young kid. Did and they, some, it, sometimes you just can't help people. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, he had issues though, but I think his issues went deeper than just. Um, substance and emotion there, there, there were issues there sir and i'm just not allowed to go into them but there, yeah, there were know. other there were other issues okay. stemming yeah. from his youth that were hurting him yeah uh, dana plato dana plato adored me yeah. every mm -hmm. time she saw me it was a kiss on the lips she kept hoping i'd turn straight and date her <laughs> right why i don't know you try to help these people and they they, they, they kind of you know Figuratively, pour gasoline on themselves and light a match. There's nothing. Yeah, it's do. it's the, the self-destructive nature of the entertainment business. One of uh, one of my dear friends that he's actually been a guest on the show several times, but uh, a dear personal friend is Mark Sotkin, the uh, writer of Laverne and Shirley, uh, producer of The Golden Girls. A great guy. Uh, I don't know if you know Mark or not. He's got we, good stories. Yeah, man, great stories. Um, Several we, of which oh, you cannot tell in public. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We've discussed that too. Um, but it's it's interesting because, and, and you probably know this as well, and I want to try to get the, elicit some advice from you. Um, the um, the comedian and the tortured soul, the um, the guy standing you know alone on the stage with you know 500 of his closest new friends um you know he's he's the king of the world for 20 minutes and then when he leaves that stage he's back to this you know self-destructive you know a uh, personality uh, what is it about particularly comedy that is so i don't think it's comedy I don't think it's just comedy. I think it's live performing. Okay. You, and you know you, what? You, you prepare Excellent. for a show. 
you put on makeup, you put on costumes, you warm up your voice, you get into the zone, so to speak, where you're all focused on giving that performance. And you go out in front of a bunch of complete strangers who you'll never see again. Or maybe you will at a, another performance, but you, you won't recognize them. You won't know them. Yeah. And they give you all this love. You perform for however long you perform. You know, I'll be performing May 12th in uh, Palm Springs at Oscar's Supper Club doing Jeffrey Mark Sings the Ella Fitzgerald Songbook. Absolutely. Well, I'll do all yeah. of those things. And I'm performing for 90 minutes. I'm doing 14 songs, which is a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, you've done it. You're out of breath. You've perspired through whatever clothing you're wearing. Your makeup is smeared. Well, if you're a married person or you're in a relationship and you have someone to go home to, because once the performance is over, it doesn't mean the adrenaline stops. That adrenaline keeps pumping for hours after you're done. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, and if you don't have someone to decompress with, if you don't have a loved one, a dear friend, a spouse, a lover, a child, a doggy, someone <laughs> who will understand that you're all, all on edge and that you will eventually calm down. Mm -hmm. People turn to alcohol. They turn to drugs. They turn to sex. They turn to food. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Judy Garland said it more than once in two of her films. You can't take the audience home with you. It no. doesn't matter how well you were received out there. Yeah. That's over. Now you are whoever you actually are. The makeup is off. The costume is off. The audience has gone on their way. And there you are. And if uh -huh. you're not happy with who you are to begin with, all the adulation in the world isn't going to make any difference. But I hear you are single and taking applications. Am I right? I am a widower. Uh -huh. And I'm just, yeah, I'm taking applications. See, you hear that? Can you hear that, gentleman? He's taking applications. <laughs> Amelia? Mm-hmm. She's not printing <laughs> out some applications. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Huh? I'll be the first one to see. Uh, well, I'll, I'll do the interviewing. What, I'm going <laughs> to. Uh, I'm going to, to give you the final round of questions, and then we will mm -hmm. let Jeffrey go for the evening. And uh, sure. Uh, well, first, my first question was: As a kid growing up, what was your favorite TV show to watch that oh, got love, you love, interested into that? I'll give you two. First okay. and foremost, I love Lucy. <laughs> yes, it, absolutely. Was, it still is the best produced, directed. Mm -hmm written by and performed sitcom we've ever had. Yeah. Um, and a game show to tell the truth. On Monday nights in the early 1960s on CBS, you had to tell the truth, I've got a secret, and Lucy. Now, my father wanted me in bed at seven to get rid of me, but there was no negotiating Monday night. I had to stay up for Lucy. So as a family, my grandparents, my great-grandmother, my parents and I watched those three shows together. On the panel of To Tell the Truth was a woman named Kitty Carlisle. Ah, yeah. Who, who my grandmother thought was the most elegant, ladylike, the epitome of what a woman should be. She was powerful. She was smart. She was educated. She was funny. She was beautiful. She was chic. And she would teach me poise 
by pointing out things that, that Mrs. Hart did. I called her Mrs. Hart because that was her married name. Mm -hmm. And my mother and my grandmother was like, argued. It's like, mommy, he's four years old. He's three years old. What does he need with Kitty Carlisle? And one week, my grandmother yelled at her back. She said, you don't even know what's in your child. These are the people he's going to be hanging out with when he gets older. He needs to learn how to interact with them now while he's in his formative stages. And she said, someday he's going to be in Kitty Carlisle's living room telling her about this evening and laughing at you. And about 42 years later, I was in Kitty Carlisle's living room telling her the story. No one was laughing. My grandmother had passed and we cried together, she and I. Yeah. But remarkable. If I had done nothing else in my career, but that happened because I didn't make it happen. Mrs. Hart called me. I was in New York doing publicity for the for the Ethel Merman book. And I get a phone call. Oh, dear boy, would you please bring over a copy of your book to my apartment? And I, I can't tell you for certain that I didn't open the window of my hotel suite and fly from my hotel over to Fifth Avenue where she, where she, and she let me watch her take a singing lesson. And then we spent time together and uh, very, very for, grateful for that. And then tangentially, Tom Poston and I became friends uh, as adults. And Tom was uh, a part of To Tell the Truth. So I think Absolutely. I Love Lucy and To Tell the Truth were the two biggest influences for me. I was always a what's my line guy. I had this thing for Arlene Francis. I don't know why. <laughs> because she was funny and she was elegant and funny and bawdy. And even with yes. her Boston accent, she was down uh -huh. to earth. Absolutely. Yeah. I just I, wish I, I growing up I just I, wish I growing up the Donna Reed show was on the air when I was growing up, but I was unfortunate to watch it live. But thank goodness for Nick at night. Because I love the way they dressed her on the show, Donna Reed. Donna was a beautiful woman mm -hmm. with very strong work ethics. Mm -hmm. uh, she was not the part she played, mm -mm. but I can tell you from Paul Peterson that she treated him very, very well. Yes. And he's got nothing negative to say about her as a person. So mm -hmm. there you go. Um, a lot is being made recently uh, for some reason or another. I'm not quite sure what it is. But uh, the, the, the Jay North story, Dennis the Menace. Yes. Is, yeah. Let's talk about Jay North. Um, Jay, and I, Jay and I are good buddies. Uh, quite a while ago, oh, about 25 years ago, we started writing his memoirs together. Mm -hmm. Jay wouldn't tell the truth. He would not out his mother. Yeah to be the villain that she actually was. And there were things about his private life that Jay wouldn't cop to. Yeah. And the things he would cop to were kind of um, seedy, but not understandable. Meaning they were very sad. Some, some of it was sexual, yeah. but there was no good reason for it. There was nothing redeemable about the stories. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I demurred as like, wait until your mother dies or wait until you can face this. And yeah. that day has never happened. Uh, Incredible. Jay, Jay Rusty Hamer, may he rest in peace. There, there you're seeing where parents did children 
tremendous harm. Being a kid actor, whether it's in New York like I was or in the films or on television, you're a kid. But you work just as hard as every adult there does. And Mm -hmm. you go to school on top of it. You're being paid to be there. All these millions of dollars, all these people's paychecks rely on your being able to do your job and do it well and do it on time. An awful lot of pressure for a little one. Yeah. And then if you don't have a good, like, like Ron Howard, his father Rance was an incredible stage father. Mm -hmm. Ron was brought up with ethics. Ron made his bed. Ron cleaned his room and, and Rance made sure that Ron had playtime every day on the set. And, and Andy, Supported that. Absolutely. But there were other kids like Rusty, like Jay, where no one was supporting the kid. This The kid was supporting the family financially. Mm-hmm. And whatever the family had to do to make money, the kid's well-being or happiness was not their concern. Well, when you grow up like that, when your education is not supported, so that once you stop being a kid actor, there is no education. A lot of these kid actors, I'm, I'm, I'm not making fun of anybody, can barely read and write, uh, became adults not knowing how to balance a checkbook or how to write a check or how to make a bed or how to boil an egg. They had no life skills. Yeah. Well, what do you do when you have no life skills? You pour the gasoline, you light a match. Yeah. Rusty blew his brains out over promises Danny Thomas made to him that did not get fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jay has not blown his brains out and I'm glad because I love him. Yeah. But he has spent his life working in the Florida penal system. Yeah. Which gives you a little insight into where his head is punishing people. Yeah. I, um, I know about his life extensively. I know a lot about what's going on with him personally, as I do with several of the people that you spoke about tonight. Um, I won't get into it, nor nor, nor will I. I. Yeah, and and nor should should anybody. But I will say that, um, it, and I'll just say it this way: it's show business isn't all it's cracked up to be, uh, and you certainly, as Jeffrey Mark said, you pay the price one way or the other. I um, think show business is the best business in the whole world. I wouldn't have it any other way for me. See, but I chose it for myself. I didn't have parents or guardians choosing it for me. And if one is a spectacularly, a spectacularly good-looking woman with huge breasts and a gorgeous face, if someone is a man with great big muscles and a giant penis, or you've got millions of dollars and opportunities, or you are a star or you can cook the best corned beef and cabbage in the world. I think God gives all of us gifts, not just in show business, Mm -hmm. but for every gift, there's a price to pay. And in my life, in my life, it's been worth it. I was with Joel Kabik for 47 years. We never lived together. He was so far into the closet. He made RuPaul look masculine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> terrified <laughs> terrified I love Ru. that yeah. anyone would ever know he was gay mm-hmm. we never lived in the same house but i was with him for 47 years there's a price to pay for that 
Absolutely. And you know what? Joel Kabik was worth the price. And I have a son and a daughter and two incredible grandsons because of him. Absolutely. That's 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 part of the gift. Mm-hmm. I'm the luckiest son of a bitch on the planet. And God bless you for it. Yes. Let's uh let's tell everybody, Jeffrey Mark, where people yes. can reach you, how they can get a hold of you. Where can you mm-hmm. where can you see Jeffrey Mark perform in a city near you? What's going on? Okay, well, there is my radio show, Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella. It can be heard as a uh, podcast on every platform or on radio stations all over the country. Every week I uh, play Ella on a, a different topic, like Ella and George Gershwin or Ella and Nelson Riddle's arrangements. <laughs> and then I tell you wonderful backstage stuff because I work with Ella towards the end of her life. Right. Uh, everything you need to know that would be interesting, that's every single week. I will be singing in a town near you the rest of this year, starting in Palm Springs, May 12th at Oscars. So you can join me there for that. Uh, The new Lucy book will be out next year. My autobiography, The Devil Was Born in Brooklyn, which is copyrighted, will be out next year. So will our book with uh, the incredible Sandy Martindale. I'm recording an album this summer. Jeffrey Mark sings the Ella Fitzgerald songbook. You can find me on Facebook as Jeffrey Mark, or you can look for the Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella group. You can find me on Instagram, Jeffrey Mark Showbiz. You can find me on Twitter. I'm everywhere, and I answer everybody. So uh, uh, the only thing I don't answer is don't don't ask me to have sex with you, and don't ask me what I did with Joel in bed. Those are the two questions. Don't ask those things. I don't really care. Honest to God, I don't give a shit. Oh man, I'm glad. Yeah, because <laughs> why would you? But you'd be amazed the hundreds of people who have wanted to know about what my sex life with my partner was like. It's no, like, a million I want to know. No, I would not. That's his personal business. I don't want to no, no, know. No, no, no. And but I'm she's not got that kind of mind. No. No, I do. No, 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 you know yeah. what? What you we see did what he's trying to do, try to put words in my mouth. Look at that. I did <laughs> what Joel and I did privately is private the, in their own home. It's, it's one of the very few things mm-hmm. I don't share with my our, our children, no. grandchildren. Right. I don't share with my friends. That's it is personal. It is a piece of him that mm-hmm. I and only I get to own. Exactly. And in your heart and, and mind only. And that's Absolutely. the way it's Exactly. Amelia, tell people where they can get a hold of you. Here on Tuesday and Thursday nights with you. Also, uh, our Facebook page as well. Uh, Amelia uh, Valerio Chapman. Uh, also, uh, Instagram is uh, What's the Buzz and aachap70 at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show or give us ideas. This is where you do it. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, we haven't even scratched the surface, have we? And that's no. why you're coming back for part. Okay, two. yeah, part two, maybe part three. Absolutely. However, I'd love it. Absolutely. Well, as and I, I am Angelo Mad Dog the Sipper. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch. I'm mm-hmm. on uh, Streamyard. I'm on um, uh, right now 317 platforms around the world internationally. Domestically, mm-hmm. two hundred and ninety-four. Mm-hmm. We are on. Oh my God! Uh, where where aren't we? Let's put it that way. Right? Find us everywhere <laughs> you can find Jeffrey Mark. 
that's where you'll find us. Mm-hmm. For as Jeffrey I, Mark, for as, Amelia Pitbull Chapman, <laughs> I'm Angelo the Pitbull Discipio. A pitbull. No, you're the pitbull. I'm the man dog. Hot damn. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>